Blog Talk Radio. Monday, July 15th, 2013, 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Uh, tonight on the show, we have got the very inspirational author and singer Esther Nicholson, as well as alternative folk rocker Andy Palmer. But now I'm joined by the Sade to my father-in-law, the Soledad to my O'Brien, the Richter to my other O'Brien, the McMahon to my Carson, the Eubanks to my Nevermind. Please welcome Tamika Kids. Tamika, how are you? Hello. I'm all right. How are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, so we have a lot to, lot to talk about. Uh, the, the, have you been outside today? It is just, it's one of those days where you walk outside and you get like a sunburn immediately. I hate to say it, but I actually did not go outside today. I was outside a lot yesterday, and I think uh, I've been inside staying cool and drinking water because it's uh, a little much. Good idea, Yesterday was hot enough. Today is even, yeah. even worse. Um, all right, so uh, the uh, verdict in the George Zimmerman trial was announced Saturday night. Uh, acquitted on all charges, not guilty. I found this out after coming out of a movie. You know, every time I go to a movie with this kid, my friend Rob Biederman, um, something bad happened. Uh, this one of the first times Whitney Houston died. And uh, and then this time uh, you had the Trayvon Martin trial and Zimmerman's acquittal, and then you had uh, Corey Monteith dying that night. So Saturday was just just a, a mess, um, and I found it very difficult to sleep that night. Tamika, what was what was your reaction? Let's start with the Zimmerman trial and verdict. Um. Shock and not shock, more uh, frustration, I would say, and then the immediate, uh, just the immediate fear that uh, things really have not uh, changed, and uh, I didn't really sleep Saturday, and uh, got a hold of my young nephew who's down in Miami, actually. The math teacher told him to be very observant of his surroundings because, you know, it's it's just a lot. I I, mm-hmm. I wish things would change, but I don't. Um, I don't know. I don't even know if I want to live in this country anymore, to be perfectly honest. But I don't know where else to go right now. Um, right. Oh. You know, there's you have a lot of a lot of people um, are rejoicing over this verdict. They're saying they're they're happy with the way that that this happened. They're happy with our justice system and that he was given a fair trial and all this shit. Um, but it, regardless of if you think he did, I don't he, care about. But I don't care about the just. I don't think anyone really well. 
let me rephrase that. The justice system did what it was supposed to do that it says in paper that it's supposed to do. However, any time, I don't care where you are, where a person can be sent to jail for killing a dog or accidentally shoot themselves in the in the leg, but yet a person cannot be held accountable for discharging a weapon and in killing someone that had was doing absolutely nothing to try to get six houses away from him to get to his residence. Uh, I, I think that is the most one of the more profound things that I I just I understand it because I'm you know, it's good that you have an inspirational guest coming up because I understand it but I don't I understand it, but I I've really lost a lot of uh, hope for this uh, country. Uh, what do you think? You know, people are saying. Um, I mean, I mean, while while there are those people that I just mentioned that are are saying they're happy over this verdict, which I, I think is an odd thing to uh, because it's not a happy situation in any shape or form to begin with. But then there are right. a ton of uh, people who are. Uh, protesting, who are for, by and large peacefully uh, protesting um, mm-hmm. in major cities across the country. What do you think would have happened had the tables been turned and it was uh, Trayvon Martin who followed, pursued, stalked, got in an altercation with, shot and killed Zimmerman? Do you think that this would have played out the same way, or would it be totally different? I think it would have been totally different. Yeah, me too. Because, and this is the thing that I've, you know, been researching and looking at or being observant about, is that I don't think George Zimmerman was really put on trial. I think Trayvon Martin was put on trial, so the outcome couldn't have been anything but crazy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that's all. Yeah. It just <laughs> when it when you can step back through the veil of anger and tears, you look at it when everything that's said about this child and the, what how the defense was acting and how they're still acting. There's still a loss of life here, obviously unnecessarily. You know. When I say necessarily, if it was self-defense, I don't, however they're playing out what took place, because, again, we still don't know. Two people can keep a secret, especially when one is dead. We still don't know mm-hmm. what happened, but um, I don't know. Zimmerman looks like a fairly healthy uh, person, so did Trayvon. Mm-hmm. So I don't, the struggle for life if you're trying to physically defend yourself, can be tremendous. You know, I've I've been able to talk people down from even laying a hand on me or using vocabulary telling them that I would eradicate them off the face of this earth if they got <laughs> any closer to me. But, I mean, that's, mm-hmm. you know, in New York, you kind of, depending on where you are, you kind of handle yourself a little differently. Down there in Florida, at this point, I have no desire to ever visit that state if I decide to stay in the United States. <laughs> yeah, there's this constant thing with Florida where it's just 
I don't know what, you know, if it's the drinking water and down forget, there or... You're forgetting about the woman who was sent to yeah. jail for 20 years for firing yeah. a warning shot. You know, it's like, really? All right, I mean... But again, you know, unfortunately, I, I try and hold on to hope. I've been doing a lot of praying, a lot of meditating, but you kind of know as a black individual in this country that it's always not going, it's all, something always is going to not be what you think is correct. Because, you know, I lived through right. the Rodney King riots and seeing, you know, buildings burning down away from my college campus and wondering, it brought up the same feeling. I'm not safe in this country. That's, and that's, I that's the thing. I, I, I'm not safe. I, my nephew's not safe. Other family members who have young children, I, I, it just doesn't. You know, it's like marathon man. Is it safe? I I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think it is. Which causes me to carry myself maybe in a more threatening manner, and I still could get shot because I don't trust you. So I mean, I just <laughs> it, it's right. an unfortunate, vicious cycle that we kind of knew was coming. But you just couldn't believe that nothing was done, and the behavior of yeah. the defense with the pompous attitude that they have continued to display, and not showing any sort of remorse because, again, there was a loss of a human life—not a dog, mm-hmm. not self-inflicted gunshot wound, not a warning shot—an innocent person and a child at that. Uh, I want to go to that point you made about the the woman who. Uh, was with her uh, abusive domestic partner, shot a warning shot, did not hurt him, didn't kill him, and received 20 years in prison. Now, and you compare she that. Also, mm-hmm. She also had a protective order in place. So she followed she all had, the rules. She did? She had a restraining order? Yes. Uh-huh. He showed up at the residence. So she still, that's the thing, you still can follow all the rules and still get jacked. I mean, you know, hey. Yeah, and then you take this man who, despite the advice of the police uh, officers that he was talking to on the phone or the 911 operators, he pursues this young man because he uh, looks like he's going to cause trouble, but the kid was just, lawfully walking down the street trying to go see his father um, and had a hoodie on with some Skittles and iced tea. Uh, You know, in that situation, if I'm walking down the street and some weirdo is pursuing me, then there may be an altercation. Um, And I think that, you know, if somebody's pursuing me, they're the one who's who's opening up this can of worms, and a lot of people, and I think that I might agree with this, are saying that, well, no, it wasn't Zimmerman who was acting in self-defense. It was the other way around. Trayvon yeah. was trying to defend himself. What do you think yeah. about that? I think that may be more accurate, but, again, it wasn't Trayvon who was supposed to be on trial as a Zimmerman. So right. I, I'm, almost ti- I'm almost tired of people talking about, in a certain fashion about uh, that child, because for one, if it had tables had been turned, I think it might have ended up in juvenile court. But no one as crazy as Florida is right now, they may have turned it over into, you know, adult court 
because his kid no, was only totally seventeen. So I mean, yeah. it just I, um, I yeah, you know, I, I've lot. dealt with I've dealt with a lot of different racial situations, especially being a medic. I had a skinhead in the back of my ambulance calling me everything under the sun besides my name. And I mm-hmm. recall put it, my partner is watching me from the driver's seat because he knows the situation could get out of hand. And I remember putting my, my boot on the gurney, and I told the guy, I said, look, you can have this two ways. you got cuts and bruises. You lost the fight. We're taking you to the hospital. However, if you continue to fuck with me at this point, this boot might end up on your chest, and then you're going to have more problems. And, <laughs> you know, again, we were able to resolve. But, you know, Thank God I was able to resolve it like that, because otherwise, you know, then it's putting me in jeopardy and my partner and the vehicle that we're in. So I mean, people are people are special. I wish it wasn't so divided. It's not, it's like what someone said on uh, MSNBC this weekend. You know, it's funny that that channel gets real black on the weekends. I was actually surprised. But one of the commentators said, you know, once Obama got into office, you know, it was like, oh, we actually sit in here because prior to that we had people on a rooftop in New Orleans, in major metropolitan city, asking for help because they're you know, they're on the roofs drowning and they got called refugees within less than a day. You know, so once Obama got in, maybe people thought, unfortunately, man, I guess we let our guard down. At least I I'm guilty of it. But okay, my it might work out here. It might. But after this, I I don't know. But I dare well, I think that's, to come up to me. that's a really good point that you bring up is is that there was there seemed to be at least instantly after the 2008 election that there seemed to be uh, more unity very temporarily uh, amongst Americans and and then it somehow the country became more divided than ever. Um, well, yeah, because we got a Congress I, that won't even do anything. Yeah. Uh, they're not going to help. They're not going to help us. That, that that's clear, no. and when I say us, I say normal United States citizens. Because damn it, that's what I am. But, <laughs> right. but I don't think I don't know who is in power or what crack they are on. But this, this is not <laughs> healthy for this country. No. Well, I, I want to pause there. We'll get back to that in a bit, and also uh, we'll talk about the very tragic death of yes talented young uh performer um yes. but first up uh Esther Nicholson is a gifted vocalist uh she's sung with Bette Midler and Rod Stewart and Barbara Streisand she's an inspirational speaker teacher and former addict uh she now adds author to her credits with the release of her new book Soul Recovery 12 Keys to Healing Addiction uh Esther's book has reinvented the successful treatment of addiction and dependence and tells the story of a broken, seemingly powerless girl and how she developed the soul recovery process to heal herself from crack addiction and to live the life of her dreams. Esther is currently on that on an excuse me, Tamika, is currently on a national book tour, conducting workshops and teachings while sharing the process that has guided thousands to their healing and highest potential. For more information, uh, go to her website at soulrecovery.org. Please welcome to the program. Esther Nicholson. Hello. Hello. Hello, Esther. How are you? 
I'm awesome. How are you today? We are doing just fine. Um, so wh- where are where are you located? You're in California. Well, I I used to live in California. Now I live in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, Music mm. City. Music City, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, are you a fan of the television show Nashville? Have you seen it? No, I'm too busy to watch. <laughs> I'm too busy to yeah. watch it uh, with you all do, the traveling like I do and everything. Busy person, but uh, it's fantastic. Um, so uh, you have this amazing story. You come from kind of the the depths of of hell, uh, addicted to crack, and then gone on to recovery and even performing with some of the major music legends of our time. Um, what is it that gave you the strength to go from kind of one extreme to to the other? Um. I know that it was reconnecting to my wholeness, you know, reconnecting to my soul. And some people call that higher power, spirit, universal principle, God, whatever it is that you call it, it's higher than that part of myself um, that was addicted to, to cocaine and, and, and all of the other addictions that I, that I suffered from. And so I just went through that deep spiritual process to reconnect to that part of me that I had forgotten. And... Um, so that is how I got from that place of, you know, the darkest night to to being in a place in my life right now that, that is truly beyond my wildest dreams. What would you say is kind of the moment that it clicked that you needed to change things? You know, there were so many of those moments, Ryan, um, as, as most people that suffer from addiction uh, can relate to. There were so many of those moments when I said, never, ever again, I'm never, ever going to do it again. When I promised my daughter, I will never do it again. But there came this one particular time when I had hopped in a taxi to take me to the to the drug dealer's house. And this taxi didn't know me from Adam. I didn't know him. But he knew something because he pulled over on the side of the road and he turned around and he said, young lady, please don't kill yourself today. Please don't do oh, it. Wow. You, don't, you, don't, you don't have to live this way anymore. And I looked into his eyes and I saw my life and I saw death. And if I would have insisted that he keep on the path that I was trying to go, I knew that I was going to die that day. And mm-hmm. something in me wanted to live more than that. And I said, okay, turn around and take me back home. And he had tears in his eyes, and I believe that that was my angel. Wow, that's quite powerful. Have Have you yeah. been uh, completely sober since that moment, or have there been relapses? Absolutely, absolutely. That's been 26 years ago. Hey, congratulations! That's incredible. Congratulations! Thank you. Thank you. Who's this other person on the line? Yes, Kamika. I hear you chomping at the bit over there to ask a question. <laughs> well, hi. I, uh, yeah. Hi. How you doing? I'm uh, awesome. Thank you. Um, what I noticed in reading your bio, and this is what I'm hearing a lot of, especially in the past 72 hours, it's not always the destination, it's the journey. Right. So how do you how do you incorporate that uh, within your music? I did watch one of your videos when uh, you're talking about Martin Luther King getting spit on, but uh-huh. um, how... Uh, I guess at this point it's almost an easy question, but, you know, the influence of your journey, how has that really affected your music? Oh, well, I, I think the passion and the 
compassion and the empathy and the depth, you know, everything that I sing, it's about my, it's about the experience. It's about my experience um, manifesting as the lyrics of those songs and mm-hmm. and the way and the way that I sing them. You know, it's like when I start singing them. You know, Esther, as you're speaking to her right now, she kind of disappears, and something else takes me over because it's every every time I was in the fetal position on the floor. You know, every time you know that I felt pain, and every time I felt transcendent and love, the love of the universe. All of that is in every song that I sing. So that's how I bring that to the table in everything I do. Sure. Beautiful. And in looking yeah. at your book, uh, Esther, you talk about addiction and dependence as though they're not just about alcohol and drugs. You talk about uh, things like being addicted to worrying uh, or right. unworthiness. Um, right. And then you even refer to the 12 steps for the rest of us. What do you, what do you mean by right. that? I'm so glad you, you mentioned that, Ryan, because most people look at the cover of my book and they say, oh, I'm not an addict. I've never done cocaine. I've never been addicted to cocaine. I've never been addicted to alcohol. And I start my story with I was addicted at five years old, never having taken a drink or a drug in my life. But I, was, I can remember from the time I was five years old being addicted to fear, being addicted to that knot in my gut that I wasn't loved or I wasn't wanted or I wasn't enough or I wasn't included or I didn't belong. And I remember that knot following me, you know, through most of my life of unworthiness. And, and I believe that that is, the, that, is the, that is the first part of addiction. That's, that's the part that causes that insatiable hunger um, for something outside of ourselves. And and then what the cause of that is the disconnection from your soul. So maybe someone is not um, cannot relate to being addicted to drugs and alcohol. But I know that there are not too many people on this planet that cannot relate to being addicted to worry and fear and low self worth and and trying to prove something um, or food or relationships or your emotions. And even though that might not look like the devastation of drugs and alcohol, it is just as emotionally and spiritually devastating. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned the uh, addiction to fear, and that's something that Tamika and I have been talking about the last couple of days. Uh, Tamika, would you ever say that you've had an addiction to fear? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, to- T- Tamika, would you say you've had an addiction to fear? No, I because I'm always, but you know, it's getting ready to sound like I do, because I'm always trying. Well, my mother raised me to always be observant of my surroundings, so yeah, that's that's what I feel. I think I don't walk around. Well, I wasn't walking around scared 72 hours ago, but now I don't know. Right. But um, but it's not an addiction. I got it. Um, yeah. And uh, Esther, what is kind of so we're mentioning that you know you can have all sorts of different addictions. What's kind of a common thread that would tie, for example, weight problems to drug addiction? Esther, oh, something happened here. Let's see Hello. if I can pick up on. Oh, hey, Esther. Yes, I'm I'm back now. I I've gotten disconnected for a moment. What was your question? Oh, so sorry. Uh, what what is the uh, common thread that would tie, for example, weight problems to drug addiction? It, 
drug addiction is simply when you, any kind of addiction, is when you have lost the ability to choose whether or not you're going to act on that addiction. And so mm-hmm. there is no difference. So, you know, so the, the cause of, of, of your addiction, which is, which is the fear, the doubt, the worry, the low self-esteem, the not feeling like you're enough, being disconnected from your wholeness, it can manifest as food addiction. It can manifest as drug addiction. It can manifest as, uh, you know, addiction to fear and worry and doubt. It can be addiction to gambling. It doesn't matter. It all depends on how you are personally calibrated, you know, what it is that you're going to go towards. So the addiction may take on many different forms, but the form, but the, but the cause remains the same. Uh, you just mentioned an emo- a lot an emotional of emotional very... and spiritual disconnection. Yeah, I'm sorry. Right. No problem. You mentioned a lot of very common things that it seems like anybody could be uh, have an addiction. Do you think that basically everybody at some point in his or her life has an addiction to something? You know, I would say so, and mm-hmm. I, I know that that's a pretty blanket statement. Um, there aren't many people I know that have not been addicted or attached to degree to something that it has caused them pain to let it go, that it has caused them discomfort and where they felt like they didn't have a choice in that moment whether or not they would act on that thing or not. You know, look mm-hmm. at, you know, we all talk about, you know, positive thinking. If you change your thinking, you'll change your life. Well, how many people don't have the power to choose their next thought? They don't have the power to choose whether my next thought is going to be positive or not because I'm mm-hmm. so attached and so accustomed to to thinking negative thoughts or thinking about worry or thinking about what's going to happen or thinking about what could happen. So so people take that lightly because it might not have manifested into a drug addiction or food addiction or gambling or one of those addictions that, you know, that's so prevalent that we all know about. But look at those 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 real subtle, you know, places that you might not even think of as an addiction. Look at where your thinking is every day. Is that thinking empowering or is or that's disempowering. And even though you know it's disempowering, do you have the power to change it? And I would venture to say, no. You know, trying to change your mind in the middle of a negative thought, I think, is harder than lifting, you know, 500 pounds, you know, when you're not, when you're not accustomed to it. And it takes practice. It takes reconnecting to your wholeness. And it takes commitment. And in this book, you talk about the 12, uh, the 12 keys of soul recovery um, to go along with that commitment. What exactly are these uh, 12 keys? The 12 keys um, unlock the inherent wholeness that we were all created out of. You know, most people say, I'm, I'm sure you've heard people say, I was, I, I, was, I was created damaged or broken or I was created this way. And I would say, no, you weren't created that way. You were created out of love. You were created out of wholeness. You were created out of balance and order. That is the nature of the universe that created you out, out of itself. You were born into dysfunction. You learned from your environment to be insane, to be dependent, to be out of alignment. And so what the keys are, are set up to do, they are extensions of the 12 steps where they take the, the steps and they make them into more of an affirmative um, an affirmative action and an affirmative statement 
For instance, instead of saying, I am powerless, which is the first step of recovery, I am powerless and my life has become unmanageable, you are now saying, through my conscious reconnection to my wholeness, to spirit, to the universe, my life is in perfect order and I am divinely empowered. So do you see how there's a little twist on that from I'm powerless to I am empowered? Yeah, and there's, it's kind of a, a controversial uh, point of view, uh, is it not? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a controversial point of view when it really doesn't have to be because I'm not saying that, that claiming that you are powerless is, is a bad thing. I'm, I, and actually, I think that it's a very powerful thing. I think that it's necessary when we find ourselves at a certain stage in life or at a certain point in life when we look at that, you know, if, if you're if you're breaking up out of a relationship and you can't stop yourself from calling that person or thinking about that person, well, right now, yes, of yourself, you are powerless, and your thinking and your life may become unmanageable. You know, if you are doing drugs and you really don't want to, but you're spending all your money and you're, you know, wrecking your family, yes, indeed, you are powerless, and your life has become unmanageable. What the 12 Keys, what Soul Recovery is saying don't pull over and park there. Use that as the catalyst to go deeper, to surrender, to reconnect to the real power that you were intended to be and that you are. Mhm. Mhm. And and how do these twelve keys differ from the twelve steps that we commonly hear, commonly hear about with Alcoholics Anonymous? The twelve steps are amazing. They are an amazing set of principles, but they were designed to be a catalyst to take the person who was experiencing powerlessness to such a degree that they could not function and could not live their lives, to get them on their feet, restore them to some sense of order and balance, consistency, discipline, give them a spiritual experience that would allow them to live a life that was in, that is indeed beyond their wildest imagination. But at a certain point, the steps stop working, and they are meant to stop working. Bill Wilson, founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, says that in order to recover, and he says we can recover, totally recover, that we must enlarge our spiritual lives. We can't pull over and park in the 12 steps. They've done their job. Now it's time to go deeper, and the 12 keys take you deeper into those inner child uh, core wounds, um, into learning um, uh, how to affirm and, and declare your life, not from this, not to this, uh, not from this beseeching, you know, place to a reticent, moody, unloving deity, but from this place of absolute love, you know. So um, it. it the, the the keys are about this power greater than yourself is not out there somewhere. The power greater than yourself is right where you are, who you are, as you are. So it's just an expansion of the twelve of the twelve steps. It's not in lieu of because my whole mm-hmm. my whole mission was to find that that gap, to bridge that gap between the twelve steps and and the 12 keys in a way that we can we can practice both sets of tools and have a complete healing process. 
And how do we practice them? What kinds of practices and techniques do you use in soul recovery? Well, for instance, in the fourth step, we we take a fearless moral inventory where we look at our resentments, we look at the part played, we look at our belief system. The part played, we look at where we need to clean up our side of the street and make amends where we have caused harm. And for a lot of years, Ryan, that totally saved my ass. I mean, that like really got me up on my feet and it, and it supported me in having a deep spiritual experience. But there came a point when I realized, wow, I'm working on the same resentment 20 years later because mm-hmm. it didn't get me it didn't get me beyond that fourth column in the fourth step of the part I played. So I was only looking at the part I played, and then I started looking at the part I played, like, oh, God, I'm this selfish, horrible person versus where the 12 keys take you, which is, no, you are not a horrible, selfish person because you did those things. You were a wounded child. You were a wounded inner, you have a wounded inner child that has never been acknowledged, that has never been loved, that has never been held by you, and that it is from this place of compassion of self and renegotiating your emotional and spiritual agreements, now you go and clean up the side of your street. Not from the place of, oh, I'm so selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and afraid. Why was I selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and afraid? Because I was wounded. Because I did the best I could with what I had. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and... W- what do you think would be a uh, simple practice maybe that people listening right now could to, could uh, do in order to experience kind of an immediate experience of surrender and relief if that is possible? I think the simplest thing that a person can do right now is, is, is just examine your life tonight. Examine those places where you said, I'm not going to do that today, and I ended up doing it anyway. Examine those places in your life where you said, I'm not going to pick up that phone and demean myself and call someone who who no longer wants to be with me and you found yourself picking up that phone anyway. Mm-hmm. Find those places in your life where you have lost the power to choose. And that's a wonderful place to start. And it is from that place that you can start to surrender. And as you start to surrender, we want to reconnect you to that place where you are powerful and you are empowered. But let's start there first. Let's first get clear about where you're feeling, where, where you lost the ability to choose. Yeah. So it, it takes a lot of, I guess, kind of reflection in the beginning and, and self-analysis, and then you can kind of, once you realize... It takes, on, it takes honesty. It takes honesty, yeah. and it takes saying, I know there's more for there's more. For me, there's more for my life, and I'm telling you that I know there's so much more than than what it is that you're experiencing, than that chatter in your head, you know, about who you are and what you have to do, and if you don't do this and all of that, there's so much more than that. And so, you know, start there. You know, start with doing something different today than you did yesterday, even if it's a little tiny step of just something different than what you did yesterday. Look at who you're pissed off at today. 
look, look and, and look at the energy that it takes for you to stay pissed off and, 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 the, and the stories that's going on in your head about who you're pissed off about. Mm-hmm. Look at what's um, going on with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a good starting point. Tamika, do you have a question for Esther? No, I'm just fascinated by listening right now. <laughs> okay. I, I, that, that's, that's something different that I didn't do yesterday. So I'm yeah, that uh, me neither. Um, and Esther, you had had to have gone through a, a traumatic experience when your daughter was removed from your custody. Uh, how was that? I mean, was that resolved? And have you and your daughter healed from that experience? Absolutely, absolutely. We continuing to heal from that experience. You know, Bill Wilson also says there's a long road of reconstruction ahead, Ryan. And I must say that you know, after 26 years of sobriety, I'm still growing up. I'm still looking at those areas. It's like, wow, that's been there for a long time, you know. And with my daughter, it's like it has been a long process because don't forget, she was a wounded child. She was snatched away from her mother. And then even when she was with her mother, I was a drug addict and, and and abusive and neglectful and not there. So even though I've done a lot of healing and I've made lots of amends to her, that healed me. It didn't necessarily heal her, you know. So mm-hmm. as far as the guilt, you know, that I've had to release and forgive myself and the amends I've had to make to her gladly, lovingly, with all my heart and, and all my soul, and, you know, I'm watching her wake up a little bit, but I'm watching the damage that that did as well. And that's not that's not easy to, to, to know that you had some, some responsibility in that. But one of the things that soul recovery also teaches, which makes this so much easier, and it doesn't negate the responsibility that I have, but it also allows me to see that everything is in divine order. And that my daughter and I had this spiritual agreement even before she came through my body. And that at the end of the day, it is a win-win for all concerned if we're willing to do this deep spiritual work. And that a message can be created out of the mess at the Mm -hmm. end of the day, you know? Yeah. Uh, that's quite powerful. You just mentioned uh, you mentioned the word divine several times. Now, do you have to believe in a higher power in order to use soul recovery? No, and, and I've been thinking about extensively since soul recovery has been released, actually, um, about the people that are agnostics and the people that are atheists. Like, no, I don't want them to be turned off by by this by this teaching by what could possibly serve them in such a huge way because the word God or spirit or divine is used. If you don't believe in God, that's cool. That's very cool. Maybe you believe in love. And love is good and peaceful, real love. I'm not talking about obsessive love. I'm not talking about possessive love. I'm talking about real love is orderly and peaceful and sweet and kind and fulfilling. So if you can't believe in God, if you can believe in love, then turn your will and your life over to the care of love. Yeah. And practice uh, now, these principles. Yeah. Esther, you um, in order to for people to get the book, uh, do they go to soulrecovery.org? Do they go to Amazon? Where do they go? Yes. Yes, they go to uh, soulrecovery.org as well as Amazon. 
um, uh, com. Also, I'm teaching a 10-week course starting August 13th on anyone who wants to go through these 12 keys with me personally in a group. And you can do that by signing up at soulrecovery.org. Again, it's a unification of the 12 steps and and spiritual principles and, and universal spiritual principles. And where will the uh, classes be located? They will be online. So anyone in oh, the world okay. can, can sign up. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we have so little time, but I want to make sure we talk a little bit about this before we go. Um, so you have you went from being addicted to crack cocaine uh, to then performing with the likes of Rod Stewart, Bette Midler, uh-huh. Barbara Streisand, Beyonce. Um, well, how did that happen? And uh, and that's that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, by the time I, I got with Bette Midler, I was 10 years sober. And I had done a lot of work on myself. Um, and it's about visioning and, and being really clear about what I wanted. And um, someone heard me sing one day. And the next thing I knew, I was getting a call from Bette Midler's musical director. I hadn't gone out to audition for it or anything. I believe that it was a gift because of everything that I had surrendered and turned my life over to the care of something higher than me, something higher than that part of me that didn't feel worthy or deserving. And it was a gift. And it was from, you know, there, you know, to Rod Stewart, to Beyonce, to Faith Hill and, and all that. And trust me, Ryan, you know, after everything I had experienced in my life, standing, you know, on the stage at Madison Square Garden, sitting on a stool next to Rod Stewart, singing Have I Told You Lately That I Love You, or having my solo of Proud Mary, looking out at 16, 20,000 people. Man, if that's not something higher than that little girl who didn't know she was worthy, I don't know what is. That is incredible. I'd imagine that was a very moving experience. You know, Rod Stewart was my second concert ever. It was in... Oh, really? Miami, Florida. Yeah, Rod Stewart. Um, but uh, he's he's one of my favorites. Uh, so that's awesome that you got to perform with him. And um, I will uh, leave it there. We didn't cover half the ground that we should have. But thank you so much, Esther, for coming on. Go to soulrecovery.org, and I look forward to staying in contact in, in the future. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Take care. Have a good night. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, sweetheart. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, that was Esther Nicholson. Go to soulrecovery.org. Hey, Tamika, you ready uh, You ready to talk to our next guest? Yes, because I have a very okay. important question for him. You You what? I have a very important question for him. Oh, okay, good. Um, well, our next guest is a talented folk artist out of Denver, Colorado, whose new album is called Hazard of the Die. Please welcome to the program... Andy Palmer. Hello. Hello, Andy. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Tamika just mentioned she has a very important question for you. Tamika, go ahead. Well, besides the fact that he's a wonderful musician, how? what transition did you go from being a public defender to 
writing this powerful music because I actually watched one of the I think the main one of the main videos of the uh, cartoon illustration, and that uh-huh. storyline itself I followed completely. So what <laughs> what was what was the jump from you know helping out the folks in Brooklyn or in New York in general to going ahead and pursuing your other passion? Well, I uh, you know I, I was writing music before I became a lawyer. It was more of a that was more of the bizarre offshoot of my life than going back to music. I mean, when I when I started going interested in law school and, and looking into that, my family, everyone around me was like, "You're what are you doing? This is so unlike you." <laughs> um, but I was kind of uh, invested in uh, social justice issues, wanting to help out in what ways I could, and music. I'd kind of burned out on music uh, at that point, so I was just looking for something else to do. And um, So coming back to music, though, was more of a, uh, just a return to where I had, had started. Um, and that happened through, uh, you know, I, I practiced uh, in Brooklyn for three years. I, I was thinking five years would have been good, but uh, for various things in my life, maybe led to a transition to moving out to Denver. You know, my wife got a job out here. So um, it seemed like a good time to go back into what I found passionate. And I was kind of burning out on being a public defender, which is not easy. Um, you know, so I had been writing songs quickly in that last year of practice. And it just felt like, you know what, I'm, I'm, I, I felt like, Playing music was more the path I should be on. Being a lawyer, I was, I was okay. I was all right. It wasn't bad, but I wasn't, you know, I'm not particularly like one of those lawyers that you see on TV, fast talking, fast thinking, and, and uh, loves to be the center of attention sort of guy. Um, that's not really my personality, so music uh, just came to the forefront again, and I've been doing it ever since. There's a part of your bio, Andy, that says you saw, as a public defender, uh, a man uh, screaming while being hauled off to Rikers Island, and you just knew something was wrong. Did you see a lot of people who were being wrongfully accused and or convicted? You know, uh, ratio-wise, I couldn't say, because uh, I don't really know. But what I more often than being wrongfully accused or convicted, yeah, at least in New York, where there's a lot of laws uh, that are so minor and targeted towards um, towards minorities or minority communities, like silly things like trespassing or putting your feet up on a subway car seat or spitting on the sidewalk, stuff that, you know, most folks would never even know existed. Those are the types of laws that were impacting communities disproportionately, so I saw a lot of people with pretty long rap sheets, uh, a lot of convictions, but they were they were stupid little things, you know, mm-hmm. that, um, you know, and if I had grown up in that uh, community, I would have a rap sheet as long as my arm as well, because, you know, if you're getting stopped and, and searched every every time you go into your project or something, I mean, I wasn't, I was no angel, most of us weren't, you know, so, you know, it had that sort of... Gruden even laid on me at that age, it just felt like a very unfair treatment of towards different communities. So that there was a ton of that. You know, I, I, there was certainly that, what you just mentioned, uh, that sort of experience was a little less frequent or someone just freaking out and 
screaming bloody murder, and that disrupts an entire courtroom, and, and it's really tough to watch. Um, and mm-hmm. that's just really apparent. Um, and and uh, and uh, I don't know. I, you know, I still don't know if that guy did it or not, but I know that that level of anxiety of I am going to Rikers Island, which is notoriously, you know, kind of a you don't want to be there, sort of a jail. No. Um, um, you know, if you were going there and you were, in fact, innocent or not guilty, I think that, uh, you know, that blood-curdling scream yeah, is a huge, just is really tough to, to be around. And it, the whole courtroom just falls silent. And it's, it's just an eerie situation when you when you see that happening and nervous giggles, but everyone everyone really knows what's going on. But it's, you know, even the judges, I think, are like, oh, shit. That guy might, might not have done it. <laughs> yeah, you know. um, well, I guess uh, we would be remiss if we didn't bring this up briefly, and then I will uh, move on to your music. But uh, as as an attorney, what was your reaction to the George Zimmerman verdict on Saturday night? <laughs> you know, I had a show last night, and I, I mentioned it. Uh, I, not, I didn't comment on it, but I just wanted people to know that that was the verdict. I wasn't. I didn't follow the case as closely as, as a lot of people out there, so I don't know exactly what um, what the prosecutors had, or who, I, I understand their witness was a little uh, shoddy. Could have been better, or in, in the star witness I'm talking about. And it, you know, there was nobody else who really saw what happened. The only person who knows is Trayvon, and you know, and he's dead. And I, I, more my reaction to that whole case is really that this whole shoot first. These, these states that have these laws that that allow this self-defense to to rise to I'm going to kill you when when there's no real threat of that type of danger being perpetrated upon yourself that just seems too far to me um, so mm-hmm. um, you know I, I, it certainly rubbed me the wrong way I, I don't like the fact that it's an all white jury mainly or five five out of six were all white it seems I'm surprised that the prosecutor got away or, or was okay with that. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, it's funny because usually <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I come down or I, I find more problems with the prosecution's case. And in this this circumstance, it was like, oh, I, I was kind of <laughs> not siding with, but you know, just in the court of, of you know, of, of I'm sorry, I'm usually the defendant's side, and this time I was finding myself kind of uh, subtly cheering for the prosecution, which is a rarity for me. Um, but, you know, you know, the disproportion of, of these cases where it's a non-guilty verdict for a, a black person's death as opposed to a white, I find uh, very troublesome. But moving yeah. on. <laughs> Moving on. Um, I mean, I so, like, I don't like, like I said, I don't know what, exactly what happened, and sure. you know, I don't want to comment. Uh, I feel you. So you, uh, y- your music has been described as I think my ear had an orgasm. I found that line fascinating. <laughs> one of your reviews. Um, when discussing your music, you said a lot of who we are is out of our control. Explain what you meant by that. Well, um, uh, I said that, uh, that 
is based on kind of my personal background, which I was adopted at you know two months old. Um, so my whole life obviously was changed dramatically um, by somebody else's choice and somebody else's decision. So that has been a lifelong sort of reality of mine. Like I, I've wondered if decisions I've made were based, uh, you know, solely on my own intent or somehow were influenced by somebody else along the way or how I wound up here or there. And, um, and like I said, that started from day one, basically, in my life. And that idea was uh, brought back to the forefront for me when I was a public defender because, you know, a lot of these people's lives were being changed based on where they grew up, you know, in the projects. And, you know, that easily, for me, I related to those folks because that could have been me had I not been adopted. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I'm, and I'm black, I'm mixed race, but I, I look black. You know, so, um, so for me, that idea came kind of rushing back. So I wanted to, and the album goes from talking about a, a monk character who I, I saw years ago. Um, on some sort of pilgrimage it, it appeared to be I didn't speak to him but that's what it looked like uh, and then it ends with a song called The Defendant which is about the experience we were just talking about and watching this individual being hauled off to jail and to me the, the album was trying to encapsulate you know the range of possible outcomes in our lives uh, but recognizing that that where we land on that in that in that scale and along that range is, is in in many ways not entirely up to us. And the album you've titled it uh, "Hazard of the Die," which is a line from Richard the uh, Third. What right. about this Shakespeare play spoke to you to make you want to put it as the title of your album? Well, uh, I missed the first part of that question. You broke up a little bit. What, what about Richard III spoke to you to make you want to use a line from it to title your own? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I don't even remember how I came up with pulling from Shakespeare, but I, I think I was more looking for a phrase that captured the idea that we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, actually, in The Defendant, of course, is that the judge basically is rolling somebody else's dice. Um, uh, a man in a robe is rolling my, my die. Um, so, um, and that's referring to a judge, of course, rolling a defendant's life dice, if you will. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I found that phrase, I think, just, I don't know, just looking for phrases with dice in it. I, I'm not, I'm no Shakespearean. I haven't, like, studied Richard the Third or anything. But, uh, <laughs> it, it, but it did refer to, uh, that phrase particularly in Richard the Third referred to, yeah, um, being accepting whatever outcome occurs, recognizing that it's kind of out of your control. So when I found that, um, it just it just rung true, and I was like, that's gonna be that's that's the title I want. Uh, quite a suitable title, then. Uh, Tamiki, you had a question for Andy. Well, yeah. Uh, how was it from living so far up in Maine and being able to actually have the time to? Meditate for upwards of four hours. How, how was it? Yeah, I mean, how, not many people are that committed to trying to be centered because we just had a previous guest talking about something of the same 
level of just knowing yourself and, you know, being centered. Yeah. Um, you know, that period of time in my life was also, well, I guess that was before I really committed to music, but um, I was living in the wood. I mean, I had to hike into this yurt for a ways into the woods, and I was all by myself. So for me, the ta- mm. time wasn't an issue. Time was the problem. There was, there was too much of it. Mm. You know, oh, okay. it was just, you know I, I mean, I was four hours a day of meditation, an hour, many, many hours a day of playing guitar, and and uh, and doing whatever. You know, days are pretty long. I mean, painfully long when you're when you're focusing solely on sort of internal um, items, which you know that, and that's kind of the problem. Is doing a lot of, lot of reading, a lot of playing guitar, a lot of meditation. It was, you know, my life has changed dramatically since then. Part of that, I don't know. Maybe may been an escape. I was just, I needed to get away from the world as I knew it, and was trying to figure out who I was. You know, it's that, that's that period of tumult in the you know, mid twenties. At least that's when it hit me that uh, I just was trying to figure out who I wanted to be and how to get there. Um, but timing wasn't the problem, definitely not. It was too too much too time. Too much time. Oh yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, living people like want to be. It sounds like vacation, but really living on your own, divorced from society, is not always a healthy experience. I mean, it's well, good. It's great. I or I'd go back to it, you know, annually when I when I finally uh, stop doing it. But it's not easy. What made you? decide to do that in the first place you, you said something about going through something in your mid-twenties and also what is a yurt uh, <laughs> a yurt uh, traditionally it's a Mongolian like round uh, mobile tent that might you may have seen pictures in your life but you know they can fold them up and, and they can get, hit the road uh, nomadic folks the yurt that I lived in was a little more permanent it was a round wooden structure like it oh, decades old, kind of falling apart, dilapidated thing. There was an old community that had lived in, in this part of Maine. Um, when I moved there, and there was nobody there, and it was, most of them were completely fallen and pancaked to the ground. But um, yurt, I call the yurt because it was round, but really yurts are tents. Um, and Is there a toilet? What? An outhouse. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> outhouse. No water. I had to haul in water every day, which is or, or you know every couple of days and in oh uh, a sled because you know there's like sheets of snow up there in Maine. It's it yeah. definitely a little. It was, sec- it was very secluded sort of living. Um, and going to the outhouse, as you can imagine, in the middle of winter was no fun at all. But um, <laughs> um, what made me do that? I think mainly I just first I viewed it as a challenge. Like how can I do this? I, at the time I was very. Uh, I had high hopes for who I was going to be, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, figure. Um, and I, the people that I that I most admired spoke very highly of finding solace uh, internally and being comfortable with who you are. You know, um, Gandhi and, you know, um, MLK and those the sort of um, highly, you know, respected folks and many others. Uh, always spoke of this. So when I read, read their biographies or, or, or autobiographies, I, I decided that it was something I wanted to see if I could handle. Um, yeah, and that's that's where it came from. Wow. And did you not 
speak to anybody during those six months? No, no, no. And it wasn't, it wasn't like quite like that. I, I, uh, okay. I would see folks once in a while, um, maybe once a week or so. I would, I would get out of there and um, see folks if I could. Um, yeah, so it wasn't. Did you crazy. know these folks, or were they just random folks living in Maine? No, no, no. I I knew some some. Well, I knew maybe I don't know two or three people who lived mm-hmm. within forty five minutes or so. So I would um, I would do that, and, and one of them played guitar, man, guitar, mandolin, flute. So we would actually get together and and have a musical outlet, which was excellent. Um, you know, I could have left much more frequently. I, I, I could have intentionally found people, but is hey, the challenge you could have left not altogether. Yeah. What's that? You could have left altogether. <laughs> I could have. I could have, but um, it's. I think I might have gone a little bit crazy towards the end of that, and it was six months uh, in total. Uh-huh. But I did that, and, I, and at the end, there was a bit of a. It was kind of a breakdown. Um, it was oh, no. like just being thankful that I I'd, I'd done at least the duration that I wanted to do, but it was uh, and it was it was good and scary and you know it was kind of disappointing that I wasn't all like dramatically a different person you know but still a good experience. Yeah. Uh, so I want to make sure we get not some. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Um, I want to make sure we get to some of your music. Um, now. Uh, I uh, I heard this song, uh, Gur, the other day. Um, by the way, that reminds me, my first real girlfriend used to say Gur all the time, so it kind of brought back not so great memories uh, of the title. But um, the, uh, the song is just one of those things where uh, my ear had an orgasm. So can you go ahead and uh, head up that, uh, just tell us a little bit about that song and, and we'll, we'll play it. Sure. Um, it was inspired by my dog, uh, a, a two-month-old puppy at the time. Um, and I don't, I just, a lot of my songs come from just a phrase that I get stuck in my head. And I think she growled at something, and I said, oh, you know, I, I know you mean the best when you girl. And I was like, oh, I can probably write a song around that. So I did, and it wound up being, it sounds kind of dark, but I think uh, if you listen to it, and, and the video certainly helps. The story is actually a love story um, of kind of a, um, you know, bank robber uh, couple uh, who, or a man who misses his girlfriend, woman, whatever it is, you know, wife, whoever, lover, um, and is doing what he does to, uh, for her benefit, so he can support her. Um, and uh, he's kind of apologizing to the world that he... he he doesn't mean to be a bad guy, but he has to be. And also, I think that kind of came from my my experiences as a public defender. Somehow. Okay. Well, this is Andy Palmer with Gur, and we will be right back with Andy. Pick the lock, 
Yeah. All right. That was Andy Palmer with Gurr. Uh, are you guys there? I think the switchboard cut out. Okay. So I'm working on getting you guys back. Hang tight for a second, Tamika and Andy. Uh, sometimes we have some technical difficulties doing this live radio thing here. I think we're getting close to getting somebody back. Um, I'm here. Oh, there you are, Tanika. Let's try. Yeah. Andy, I think we may have him. Uh, nope. Oh, there you are. Okay. Hello. Uh, so I uh, loved that. Tanika, what did you think of that? I loved it. But like I showed you, I watched the video a couple times, too, because I saw the guy buying the girl pearls and stuff like that. I could. It was like watching a little mini movie and understanding <laughs> the lyrics as well. And the animation kind of reminded me of uh, the movie Heat, and they come in with the ski masks on and the suits and the guns and stuff like that. You know, coming into the bank, coming into the bank to take care of what they need to take care of, even though they don't want to do it. Right. Yeah. You know, I wanted to the video. I wanted to make clear what the lyrics we're talking about, because people hear that song and they're like, "Oh, this guy's just pissed off about something." And he just, you know, <laughs> Growling, growling at the world, but it's really not. Like I said, it's a love story. And so the guy I worked with on that video, he's actually an Italian guy, and uh, we we went back and forth on Skype for months about what what I wanted to come through, and and he did that artwork, and uh, and I think it it helps to make the sense make sense of the song for a lot of listeners. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I'm glad you saw that. Glad you uh, you know, got it worked for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and Andy, you uh, you have been compared to a number of artists, including uh, Tom Waits, Bob Dylan, uh, Johnny Cash, Leonard Cohen. Uh, are those guys some of your influences? Who who has influenced you musically? Um, I've listened to a lot of Tom Waits, definitely, um, and Dylan. I hadn't noticed there would be. <laughs> I would have no indication of that. Well, here's the thing, Ryan. I I uh, I don't always growl like that. My songs, uh, yeah. are not, you know, I wrote a song called Gur. It started out when I first started singing that song. I was like, oh, I'm going to that's my Gur. And I was like, you know what? I really got to animate that a bit. And um, so uh-huh. that that was kind of the beginning, actually, with that song, which was a couple of years ago of my of that of utilizing that sort of style. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't I don't I think that's why people. To go to Tom Waits a lot. They're like, oh yeah, it sounds like he's got that low kind of thing going on. But I, I don't, I don't know if I'm totally like that similar to Tom Waits. But, but um, a little more, a little more ballady folk Bob Dylanish actually, I would say. Um, mm-hmm. But I do like, I do like those low, you know, those low notes and coming through the baritone once in a while, which which does lend itself to the to the Waits comparisons. But I'm actually. Yeah, yeah. Kind of embarrassingly, uh, in my music back like background started out with a lot of jam band stuff. Um, I don't sing like that or, or write like that, but I mean the influence question is always out to me because I don't write necessarily what I listen to um, all that much. Um, but you know, mm-hmm. I mean I'm all across the board now. I go from Tool to to uh, LCD sound system to you know Middle Brother to you know. Local bands that I'm really into, or I'm all Justin Bieber, Miley Cyrus. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I just got his uh, 
poster? I don't know. Did he come out with a poster? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure you can find a dozen Beaver posters. Um, and yeah. your music is often uh, described as timeless and epic. What do you think makes it so? Let's uh, uh, see. I don't know. I do like to write pretty simple stuff. I'm not trying to... I don't listen to something contemporary and say, hey, this is kind of the mold I want to fit. Like, kind of indie pop is everywhere now. And, you know, Mumford & Sons sort of sound, which I love. Um, but but uh, there's so many bands that kind of trap and, and fall in line with what's going on. And I don't... I, what I When I write, I try to actually divorce myself of any influence and just be, and just ask what's coming from me. Um, I mean, the influences are obviously still there, but um, but I, I think the simplicity is probably one thing. That, that I, I mean, I don't know. I didn't say time was epic about my, my music. Somebody else did, but I think it might be the simplicity and the... the um, I have a storytelling component, which is kind of folk-ish in nature um, yeah. that might lend itself to those sort of uh, statements. Uh, that's a okay. guess. And uh, names you the 14th best new independent artist. Who the hell are those other 13 guys and how do we get rid of them? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know, man. That's, that's I, you know, I, I'm good with being 14th. Uh, that's, that's perfectly acceptable. But I, I you know, <laughs> We should knock them out somehow. <laughs> <laughs> um, t- Tamika, I need to. I'm going to ask Andy a question. Just know, Tamika, that I'm asking him for a friend of mine. Okay. Okay. All right. This is straight up. I'm asking for a, f- a friend because uh-huh. Andy is an attorney. Say, uh-huh. Andy, that a friend of mine a couple Thursday, no Wednesday nights ago, uh, maybe went out drinking in New York and then. Uh, decided, oh, well, I really have to urinate right now. Let me use the corner of this subway station and turned around to a police officer and got a citation. How would you handle that? <laughs> well, first of all, as an attorney, I should tell you that you should not consider this legal advice. That's like rule one uh, when <laughs> talking to an attorney that I teach us in law school. Uh, unless you want to retain me, in which case, call me later. Well, he can't retain you. He can't retain you. You know, this hypothetical friend of yours can give me a call. His friend. But, yeah, right. Uh, I would pay the summons. <laughs> what I would do is you want to fight it. I mean, I don't know. Unless some, this person wants to fight it, I would just pay the summons. I would be happy. Uh, here's what I'd do. I'd be happy. That didn't, uh, where do you live now? Where are you? Uh-oh. Or where's well, this, well, where's friend this friend? Where's this? Is, your friend. Where's your friend? In, he lives in Brooklyn, New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would be happy that I wasn't jacked up, searched, had weed on me, and, you know, had an <laughs> outstanding warrant, and then I'm not still on Rikers Island. That's what I would do. Yeah, but doesn't the doesn't the the doesn't it go down as a misdemeanor, though? Isn't that on your record forever? No. I, well, I don't know what this person got charged with. Uh, what did uh-huh. you say it was? Uh, <laughs> it was urinating public. in public. Uh, 163.09. I don't memorize all the statutes, but <laughs> but I do. I, I I would guess that's more of a you know you know you know it doesn't rise to a level of a crime. 
I, I highly doubt. But uh, if it does, okay. if it does, you you know, this person would want to look into that, and then they would definitely want to go to court because nine times out of ten, ninety-nine times out of hundred, they will either dismiss it if you go to the hassle of going down to court, or you will definitely get it reduced from a crime to you know just a, like a disorderly conduct, which isn't is, isn't a crime and wouldn't impact this you know wayward individual's uh, life <laughs> in one way or the other. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, thank you. I'll, I'll relay the message uh, <laughs> yeah, to her. Agree. Okay. Uh, yes, I'll tell her. I'll tell her all about it. So now um, it's a now, Wow. <laughs> so uh, the website is andypalmermusic.com, and uh, I would much rather listen to you all day than Mumford and Sons, sir. So uh, <laughs> thank I, you, Ryan. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I really dig the stuff. Uh, where can people go to get your uh, album? iTunes, CD Now, all that? Everywhere, yeah. I'm on iTunes, Amazon, CD Baby, Bandzoogle. I think if you punched in Andy Palmer and any of those things, you would, I would come up. I got two albums out and one EP. And yeah, Facebook.com, A Palmer Music. Um, yeah, I, I, any of those places would get you there. Awesome. All right. Well, check him out, Andy Palmer Music. Follow him on Twitter, Andy Palmer Music. Andy, it was a pleasure. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Tamika. Bye-bye. And have a good night. Bye. All right, Andy Palmer. Uh, that was Andy Palmer Music. Now, Tamika, we were just talking before uh, the interviews um, about all the craziness that happened this, this past weekend. And uh, on Saturday, I... Um, was at this movie, the the Superman movie. Have you seen this Man of Steel yet? No. Uh, I know the actor. Uh, I've seen, I saw him in uh, another cable show that he did with, uh, it was like a King George V or something like that. So I know the man is beautiful, but I haven't seen him in the Man of Steel yet. He, he's quite attractive. He actually looks a lot like my friend Joe Tannenbaum. If you want to go Facebook stalk my friends afterwards, I feel like Joe has a very similar face to Henry Cavill. But so um, I'm watching this Man of Steel, and I go, we go in 3D because uh, I feel like it'll add something to the movie, uh, and I've never seen a 3D major motion picture before. Let me tell you, the movie sucked, the 3D didn't add shit, and then we walk out of the movie, and we get the notifications on our phones that George Zimmerman was acquitted. That was awful enough. Then... I'm on the, the subway going back, and I, I think I had, like, Twitter open when I still had service. So I go and look at the tweets, and I see, I follow some Broadway people who inevitably amongst them will be some uh, Glee fans. And I see some tweets saying, Corey Monteith found dead, and then saying, uh, this is a joke, right? And at first, I'm thinking in my head, Tamika, I'm thinking, well, this is like when they said Zach Morris died in a car accident, or when Kel of Keenan and Kel died, or when Eminem died, and none of that was true, and I'm just thinking it's an Internet hope, then when I get home, there's more and more proof, and then I get the notification from CNN. Not that that's a trustworthy source, but then it actually did seem real, and it was. Um, and that was really, yeah. you know, fucking sad and random. Um, I, I, what was your reaction to that? I understand you, you worked with Ryan Murphy a bit. But, yeah, I worked with Ryan Murphy on uh, Nip Tuck, and, you know, he's a very supportive man with his uh, cast and crew. I know 
they had that Corey had checked himself into rehab not too long ago. I think it was the second go around. And he, you know, he's very he was very honest about talking about his battles with addiction, which you know we discussed earlier on the show. And uh, oddly enough, someone just as crazy in life, Aaron Sorkin, said something that made a lot of sense today. Because everyone was talking about how Corey was in such good spirits, he was doing fine. And Aaron Sorkin mentioned that that's usually the time when something may occur. Because we still don't know what happened, you know, just yet. But, it's you know, I, poor baby. Because at 31, I just, you know, it's, it's sad. What do you think Aaron Sorkin meant by that? When somebody who's well, like a recovering addict gets in like right. a really good mood, that maybe they think that they can go back to their old ways again and not it yes, not affect them. Exactly, that's exactly what he was talking about. Because I was still working at Warner Brothers when Aaron Sorkin got caught at Burbank Airport or Bob Hope Airport with a whole bunch of stuff. You know, he that was during the time yeah. of West Wing. You know, and finally. I happen to be walking down Ventura Boulevard for the Christmas parade, and I see him there with his family. And I guess you could just see the change from seeing him on the lot working to after going, getting out of jail and being able to take his family at the Christmas parade out there in Studio City. You could see that he had changed, like, I can't do this again, you know? So Yeah. Well, I was in uh, college at the time. I'm not sure if you know or not, but he was in – our department at Syracuse, our drama department, and um, mm-hmm. Aaron Sorkin, he failed uh, his freshman core classes, like our freshman kind of boot campy acting classes. He he, mm-hmm. he actually failed those, um, but, you know, now he, he's gone on to become one of their most successful alumni. Now, at the time, um, I I think I had just gotten there. I think it may have been my freshman year, or maybe it was the year before, where uh, I guess what happened was these uh, guys, there, there are a couple drama party houses uh, at Syracuse, and one of them is called Marathon. And uh, two of the heads of the department, Jim Clark and Jerry Clark, um, they were then married at that time. Uh, they had to have a meeting with the boys of Marathon after Aaron Sorkin got caught at that airport in Burbank uh, and, oh, wow. tell, and tell the people of the boys of Marathon you cannot sell Aaron mushrooms. Uh, you know, he's he's in the public eye. You can't be doing this stuff. Um, and that's, you know, how he got in trouble. And so then when I was there, uh, I think it was my junior or senior year, um, Aaron Sorkin came in to speak to us. Uh, and he, like, that was, like, the, one of the last questions. And he just, he had a, I don't remember what he said exactly, so I guess it wasn't that great, but it was it was a very nice message about, you know, not letting your demons kind of overtake you and stuff. And he uh, has now created this whole uh, Sorkin semester for Syracuse drama people uh, in L.A. It started off as uh, Sorkin week in L.A., and now it's a whole semester. Um, and for a long time we've had the New York semester, now there's the L.A. one as well. Neither of those existed when I was there, so yeah, thanks a lot. But I, oh, oh my, I can't complain. I got to go to London for a semester. Um, but it, it's it's a fascinating uh, thing. These, uh, as you were mentioning yesterday, that sometimes people in Holly weird. They they have so much access to all these things that uh, it can really be detrimental in the end. And I was I saw Larry King was on the Today Show this morning, and he said that somebody was. Somebody was telling him once that, like, 
actor, it was some actor or something was like, uh, when you already have everything, what, what is it that makes you need something else? And, and we'll never have the answer to that. Yeah. I, yeah. Cause I mean, we see, this is, you know, it's deja vu all over again. Cause I mean, look at river Phoenix back in the day. You know, and mm-hmm. other count, countless other people. Again, we don't know what happened to Corey, but it, it it wouldn't be too far off the beaten path if, with all of the good, euphoric, jovial feelings, that something went amok, or it could have been a pre-existing condition. I mean, it just. But knowing his history of his struggle with addiction and recovery, it just it makes it even more tragic. Saturday just was not a good day. No. It's pretty amazing how he had this tortured history with substance abuse, and he was only 31 years old. I mean, how did he even have time to abuse all these substances? But I guess he was started pretty, He was pretty open old. talking about it. No, he was pretty open talking about it. He started, like, when he started abusing substances, he said maybe, like, around 15 Went to rehab, I think, around the, uh, the first time around 19. And then, you know, it was all right, and or that we know of, or or was uh, very high-functioning because, you know, there's a lot of us walking around like that. And then, you know, the core people, his producers, creators, all that stuff, were like, you know what, this is not going to work for you right now, if ever. Not like that, you know. So I, I Again, it's tragic. I uh, pray that his family, like so many other families, finds some sort of peace or meditation or prayer because it just there's a lot of heartache in the world right now. Absolutely. Uh, there's, um, I, you know, when you, coming from the world of acting, I know how close uh, casts, ensembles, casts, crews, directors, how close everyone can get when they're working on something that they love. And, and at, you know, when I got the news on Saturday night, I couldn't stop thinking about how devastated all the castmates must be. And I thought about, well, and Leah Michelle played his girlfriend on screen. Uh, she must be really devastated because there's always that kind of connection that you need to have with your on-screen on uh, lover then I completely forgot that they're actually together in real life, which kind of, I mean, it quadruples the tragedy of that. Because it does, even if it was just a fictional romance, there is, there, you know, that kind of family feeling that you get with people that you work with in the arts. Uh, but uh, just, like, how freaking awful it is that they were actually, you know, together in real life. But you were mentioning yesterday that you don't think she helped the situation. Yeah, I don't... If I can stand it, I don't want to go down that road, but I don't, from my interaction with her, she, she she's a special person, and that's about <laughs> all I have to, that's all I have to say about that, but, you know, it takes different, different folks for different strokes, you know, because mm-hmm. we did, we did the dailies at, in LA, we did the dailies for the Sopranos, we knew James Galdolfini, we would have 15 different takes of the same lines. And we knew how much they all were putting into making The Sopranos what it was. 
you know, I cried my eyes out about that because, you know, I'm sure I told somebody they probably had to pick Edie Falco up off the floor, you know, because that was sudden too. So it just, it's just been I'm a sorry, lot. They had, to pick his, they had to pick his what off the floor? I was thinking they probably had to pick the actress who played Carmilla, his wife, on in the show, Edie Falco. I was thinking they probably had to pick her up off the floor because it was so oh, sudden. Right. And she said that her, Tony and Carmela's love, uh, something to that extent, was so intense and well, it was like one of the greatest loves of her life. And that's saying the character's name, Tony and Carmela, yeah. not exactly. Jimmy as we knew him and, you know, Edie. So it's just, you know, if, and the flip side of it, I, you know, you're born dying. It's going to happen. Yeah, I don't know anybody that's gotten away with it. But much like what the other person has said, uh, the prior guest, you know, it's not so much always the destination but the journey. So, I mean, even, I, I lost a coworker recently this week, and I'm thinking, God, we were in the same department, what chemicals were we exposed to? But I'm also thinking, well, you know what, that part of the journey, I was at Warner Brothers. I was very young in a very great technical situation to be able to experience so much. You know, and I'm still technically young, but that, you know, I have to, before I continue to keep crying in the next 72 hours, I have to think about the strides that were made, that the conscious decisions that I was able to make to keep moving forward in different phases of adversity. And we all do that. Yeah. I'm sure Leah Leah loved the hell out of Corey. I mean, he's gorgeous, nice guy. You know, that's going to suck. The entire HBO and Soprano family, that's going to suck, you know. Um, And, again, it's very random. We can even, you know, it's just, it's a fact of life that that's going to happen. Now, how it happens, if you can prevent it from being violent, God bless you. If it happens, you know, Jimmy was with his, his family in Italy trying to do something for his kids. And it's it's over. It's sad, but it now you know, it's he's in hopefully a higher, better place. And the same with Corey. Whatever was bugging him, if something was or whatever happened, you know, just pray, keep moving on in a forward progression. I'm just thinking as you're saying this that there's it's there's a weird dichotomy between the character he played on on Glee's quite you know, wholesome, innocent young kid, uh, which makes it even, like, more shocking that, you know, despite how honest he was about his demons and his struggles, it's still just such a a shocking thing to, you know, look back at these episodes and see this this guy in his 20s dancing around just to know that he was going to die two years later. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Yes, well, it is. Well, all right. We are going to end the show on, on unfortunately, on that note. Um, but uh, uh, come come on back now here on uh, Wednesday for uh, Blaze and Ride backstage, and then we'll be back again next Monday night um, with uh, singer Denny Love. Um, and uh, I can think of no better way of ending the show than by saying, if it ain't showbiz, it ain't a fizz, hit the brakes, Florence. Go record a podcast, everybody. And, hey, Tamika, if you have a Barbie doll, what are you going to do to that thing? You know, in this climate right now, I don't even think, I think I, I think they would find me 
and arrest me if I said what I would do to that Barbie right now. <laughs> All right. So that's okay. Yeah. I'm going to refrain. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I'm just going to say bend that trick hole backwards, cut off her hair, leave her in some drawers somewhere, burn her knuckles on the stove. Good she night, everybody. Like Good night, Tamika. She sounds like your friend that is supposed to go to court. <laughs> Wait, who sounds like that? The Barbie? Yeah. <laughs> how how oh. so? Because she's taking off her drawers? Yeah, public urination. <laughs> uh, I'm really worried about my friend, by the way. <laughs> I'll talk to you later. Uh, I don't have right, bail stay money. Stay out of trouble, everyone. What did right. you say? I don't have bail money, so just work it out. You know I knew a... Do you know I knew a bail bondswoman in in New Haven uh, who gave me her card in case anyone ever went to jail? Uh, she works for the health department, and one night my friend Asaf, like, prank called me and said that our friend Amos uh, went to, uh, w- was in lockup at, that night, but he was, he and so I was all ready to, like, get this woman's card out. Her name was Mamie Smith, and she was awesome, but... Uh, Asaf was lying, so didn't have to use. Yeah, see, I hope your friend works it out. Right, you can give me a call and <laughs> let me know. <laughs> I'll tell her thank you for her. All right, Tamika, <laughs> have a wonderful night. We'll talk to you. You too. We'll see you guys soon. Um, holler back on Wednesday. Good night, everyone.